0: we choose to go to the moon okay everybody uh welcome this is episode five of uh our from the earth to the moon podcast uh my co-host is peter and i am doug uh we're also the co-hosts of a popcorn drink combo which is also a movie podcast that you can listen to as well Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. So, episode five. We're now really into the meat of the series. This is Spider, uh, essentially about the lunar module. Uh, this is uh, originally aired in April nineteenth of nineteen ninety eight. This was directed by Graham Yost and written by Andy Woke. I think this I is. Like, I like this one. I like this one a lot too. There's a there's a lot here. And I like the tone there's it's, it's a lot of this is sort of, it's both lighthearted and wistful at the same time. You know, you said the meat
1: of the show, this is really the meat of the show because it's basically about the nitty gritty about, about what makes the adventure of Apollo so interesting, right? Because it, it gets down to the details while still maintaining the kind of wonder of the achievement throughout as a vein sort of running throughout the, uh, throughout the episode
0: and it's this is sort of of all the episodes like you know there are some of the episodes that are love letters to the astronauts there's an episode coming up that's sort of a love letter to geologists this is a love letter to engineers right you know this is about guys you know with slide rules and right. and, and skinny ties and and heavy horn-rimmed glasses you know struggling over numbers Right, in some ways that's what makes it most likable because
1: most of the fans of this show are guys <laughs> those like those guys. <laughs> <laughs> they're right, those they're the descendants of those guys.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely I definitely uh I I uh, I felt like I was watching some kin in this. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh we begin our episode with a debate about how exactly To get to the moon and you know this is interesting because I think probably a lot of people who are watching the show maybe didn't know that there's a lot of ways to go to the moon Um, and you know we all grew up with this is how they did it but there's lots of ways And, and they they delve into the debate between direct ascent earth orbit rendezvous or lunar orbit rendezvous which essentially sort of consumed some of the early planning of the Apollo program. Or the guys that uh, just sh- sh-
1: ship everything to the moon ahead of time and have it all set right. there. Which yeah. now people talk about now, by the way, as a way to go to Mars.
0: Right. I wouldn't mind going to Mars. I don't know if I want to go to Mars without a way home. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have to build it. Kind of like yeah. in the Martian. <laughs> um, so we, we meet Tom Dolan, uh, who's... Uh, an engineer, right? Who who was given the original credit for proposing or working out the math behind lunar orbit rendezvous, um, and he's played by I can't remember. John uh, is it? Is it? He's the guy who was the captain of the Excelsior in Star Trek Generations, and he was also in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. He was the uh, the other male friend out of the three of them Ferris Bueller.
0: And then uh he passes the torch to John Hobolt, who really champions lunar orbit rendezvous, uh, with his famous uh, letter to to Bob Siemens that begins with that he is a voice in the wilderness. <laughs> yeah, ironically, he gets
1: their attention not from
0: his idea, but from being a pain in the butt. and being persistent, yeah and and basically saying that this is the way to get to the moon quickly and with less mass and, you know, lower energy consumption. You know, one thing that they don't uh, talk about in the show is, you know, there's that bit where the guy who plays Von Braun says that, you know, direct ascent, you know, that's the way you do it. And direct ascent is a totally viable way to do it. And direct ascent, you know, it does require a much larger lander, but Von Braun knew all that and he knew all about the disadvantages of direct descent, but where did Von Braun work? Huntsville. What does Huntsville do? They make big rockets. So he was actually a strong advocate of direct descent, largely because it protected his fife and would keep government dollars to him. Because the Saturn V is actually not the rocket that they originally envisioned. The 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 Saturn V was a smaller version of what they initially thought they were going to have to build and that Von Braun wanted. That's interesting. Yeah. So bigger than that. Huh? <clears throat> so Von Braun isn't, you know, they, they kind of don't really convey that they make it sound like he's being a little silly or, or they make him look a little silly when he says it's the only way to get to the moon. Um, and, and by the he, way,
1: he was saying that stuff. This is way out of time. I mean, this is, this is like 1961 when he was, when he wrote that letter, it's not like it's, at a time when the Apollo program existed, it didn't. It wasn't even a remotely in existence
0: yet. This was long, but this was during the Mercury time, right? But you know, it's interesting. Like it to flip it over, the Soviet lunar program. You know, they had a, a different way to do it as well. You know, they had a version of lunar orbit rendezvous that was very different than our lunar orbit rendezvous, and um, the the Soviet. Pro- program, you know, one of their plans was to put a Lunakhod rover on the ground, on the moon first, that would act as a beacon that a one-man lander could find, and then they would do a lunar orbit rendezvous on the way back, but they couldn't do an interest ship transfer. So when the, the Russian lunar module docked with essentially a Soyuz um, in lunar orbit, the astronaut would have to do an EVA to get into the the transfer ship to take them back home. But it just shows you that there's lots of different ways that you can do it.
1: Well, they could have just put the hatches really close, and he just flew in there like Dave Bowman.
0: <laughs> yeah, they—you know—it's funny. They uh, were getting a little off topic, but when the and the Russian plan, they they couldn't make a very precise dock. You know, like Apollo Soyuz is years away, um, and the way that they uh, had the dock on the Soviet side was they had sort of like a. For lack of a better term, like a, like a honeycomb board and the tip of the Russian ascent stage of the lunar module, basically if they could hit if they could hit the sort of honeycomb board anywhere, it would catch. Like if they could stick hmm. a probe into a million boxes and catch it. they only had to get one of them. Hmm. Um, anyway, but now we shift gears, right? Lunar orbit rendezvous has been selected, and now we switch gears to Long Island, home of Grumman. Uh, yep. And we see Tom Kelly and his engineers uh, bidding, right, and waiting for the results to see if they got the contract for the lunar module. $2 billion. Is that what the contract was? Yeah. $2 billion I it... 1960s
1: dollars. Yep. I don't know. It actually might have started lower and then it went higher, but I'm pretty sure. The yeah, they had all sorts was... of
0: overruns. Yeah. And, you know, they don't say it. They They make it look... They make it look in the show like uh, Grumman really, really wanted the lunar module. And that's actually not true. Grumman very much wanted the command module. And they didn't get it. And it went to North American. And the lunar module contract at the time was viewed as a little bit of a booby prize. Because the command module, they knew every single Apollo flight had to have a command module. But lots of them did not need a lunar module so the command module was a bigger project that was felt that would have longer longevity and there'd be a lot more spaceships to make and they didn't get it
1: it's probably easier to do that too in in some ways you know like uh, I wonder I mean, the well it doesn't module, have to land the command module right it's more like what's been done before whereas the lunar module I mean that is is completely new i mean it's a huge engineering challenge and, it's and uh I, it, I think the it, show does a good job at explaining
0: giving you a glimpse of what a huge challenge it was right and they were they really had nothing to go on, sort of like you were saying you know they the command module could build off of the design and lessons learned from Mercury and Gemini, whereas this thing had no precedent and really Nothing since has been like it at all.
1: Yeah, it's the only thing ever to land on anything. You know, besides and come outside back. of
0: docking. Right. Right. And come back. And come back. back. And it's and it's not like a Mars lander that just has to get there and then function. This is different. Like, you know, and it also had a support to support two astronauts for a couple of days. Right. And right. And it had exactly. And it had to land
1: gently, not with like a bunch of airbags and roll or, you know. It couldn't right. land <laughs> yeah, too hard.
0: Yeah, we couldn't do the uh, the the balloon airbag roll right. <laughs> roll with the astronauts aboard. Yeah, it couldn't tolerate. That would be good though. Yeah, yeah. it couldn't like, tolerate like, that like It's not stress. Mars. You could they could do like Moon Pathfinder. That wouldn't have been such a good idea. Right. But you know, it shows you like they had to work all this out from scratch, from absolute scratch. But you know, what's interesting is um, the the Soviet lander, the so-called L three, um, is much much smaller than uh, the Apollo 11 sorry the Apollo lunar module like it is it is striking even though they had earlier in the space race a much better heavy lifting capability by the time Apollo rolls around we were ahead in that regard and we could put a lot more tonnage into space and into orbit right Um, so then there's this sort of like kind of ham-handed scene that I have to confess I like anyway where Tom Kelly tells the group that they got the contract by leading them to believe they didn't get it first right
1: although he's right about them not going home for years
0: right but i guess a big government contract you know that's uh that's as good as it gets in that world um did you notice that they use the great escape music throughout the show yes because the ball because it was ball bouncing Right. So they, we keep seeing Tom Kelly kind of playing a one-man version of handball or something on the on the back of the Grumman building, and they keep playing the great escape music. Right. And then we sort of get this, and this is kind of what I was talking about in the beginning, we get this very lighthearted, it's really almost like 15 or 20 minutes of them designing the lunar module often shown with them futzing with like a small tabletop model to convey to the audience all the changes that the design went through and how much the whole thing was in flux and how different the final version was from the original version. Five legs to four, seats to no seats, big windows to small windows, astronauts sitting to astronauts standing.
1: Right, and it, it started out with a form and it ended with function with form dictated purely by function whereas you know when it starts out it kind of looks like a 1950s sci-fi, yeah it's very buck rogers right it looks yeah it looks like a you know 1950s sci-fi toy and it ends up as something that i guess you know we're used to looking at it now in some ways but the thing is it's strange looking i mean it's not streamlined right it's it's got weird bulges it's covered in gold foil um it's got, and it's
0: got and it's got sort of both weird rounded portions and severely angular portions. Yeah, and there's stuff sticking out all over the place, and and
1: it's it is spidery looking in a sense. I mean, it is it's not obviously not built for an atmosphere, and I think that people's conception of of um, of science fiction devices or transports were much more streamlined because even what they were thinking of in terms of rocketry and capsules, all those things are streamlined for re-entry and also for ascent. And this thing is not ever going to be functioning in any atmosphere. So because of that, it has no, none of those considerations.
0: I no, think not probably, at all.
1: People must've been really surprised. And they, they try to convey that by sort of the astronauts and even some of the engineers talking about how it's ugly.
0: Yeah, it's funny because I wouldn't say it's ugly. I mean, but again, maybe I'm just used to looking at it. Um but, you know, it's ungainly. And you know, for for pilots who are used to for the graceful lines of jet fighters. It's right. a whole other thing.
1: Yeah, it's not exactly sexy. It's not like a you know, what was that thing? The uh that supersonic uh bomber that the the xb-70 valkyrie or whatever right. it was yeah, there, no but... xb-70
0: <laughs> and and this whole <clears throat> this whole montage of them going through the design phase really really occupies 1963 and then by 1964 we are now seeing them move into the the building and testing phase and there is some neat uh genuine grumman footage of the lunar module assembly and testing which i thought was really cool to see you know, right. it's interesting, like, they, they kind of convey in this, and most shows don't do that, how tiny the actual uh, cabin in the lunar module's ascent stage was. Like, it's really it's really small. Like, the command module, I think I said this in one of the earlier podcasts, the command module had the equivalent volume of a, of a Volkswagen Beetle, and the lunar module is smaller. And a lot of what you think in the ascent stage is room for the astronauts is not. It's equipment and tanks. So, like, right. what the astronauts have in that in that ascent stage i mean it's like a phone booth or you know we're like kind of like one and a half phone booths stuck together and if you've ever seen the diagram of how they slept because when the some of the later pilot flights they slept on the moon they basically had to sleep in like slings and hammocks on top of each other like it was the only way to do it
1: yeah no i mean the other thing is when you see movies about it or tv shows like this the camera is looking at them standing from various angles but by nature of having to film it, you know, they, they never show a view from right above them where you'd see that they basically had a wall right
0: behind them. Right. And because you don't see that wall, <clears throat> excuse me, because you don't see that wall, you get an artificial sense that it's bigger than it is. Exactly. Exactly. There's a there's a brief scene coming up in uh, episode seven where you see the astronauts attempting to sleep in the lunar module. That kind of conveys that a little bit, but you don't really get that here um tom kelly a legend at uh at grumman there's a nice little scene where he is shown to be kind to an engineer who came to him after admitting that he made an error in the calculations regarding the strut strength of the lunar module itself which is i think i guess it's meant to humanize tom kelly a little bit tom kelly is really sort of the hero of the episode i mean the, the large
1: part of the episode's about him and
0: you, yeah, you the astronauts of Apollo 9 that we meet um, in the middle of the episode are really kind of secondary. Yeah, yeah, Kelly's the main. And, and he's also for, sort
1: of, he's really well-liked. I mean, he's not, there's not a lot of strife involving
0: him. You can tell. No, he, no. You know. he um, You know, after Apollo, he went up to, he went to Harvard or MIT and got an MBA. I forget which one. But he kind of lit out for a while, um, and then we meet we meet the crew of Apollo Nine, right? Who are going to take Lunar Module Three is the the first actual flyable Lunar Module. We we come to learn they're going to take it up into Earth orbit, dock, undock, fly around. Um, Fly around, uh, fire both the descent stage and the ascent stage. Uh, And the crew of Apollo 9 is uh, Jim McDivitt is our um, mission commander. Dave Scott is our command module pilot. And the very unfortunate Rusty Schweikart is our lunar module pilot. And much is made about the fact that they have a very, very dense mission plan. And these guys could have flown on Apollo 8, uh, but decided to wait for their lunar module to be ready because they were basically so tightly wed to the mission plan that they'd worked on for years. Right, and they spent a lot of time developing the lunar
1: module. Like they they went to Grumman frequently, and um,
0: you know, McDivitt and Schweikart did not. Dave Scott he was a North American. Right, the command module pilot didn't really go to Grumman. Right, but the other guys were there a lot.
1: Because right, and you kind of get
0: the sense that right that they know everybody, and they they practically were living on Long Island for a while. Yeah, I mean, they show that they show them there over,
1: and it's over years because they have they're they're right. making revisions and
0: they're figuring out things that need to change. Because they fly in early sixty nine, right, and this all begins in sixty three. Yep, and that's with you know that's with Grumman working literally three shifts seven days a week, like. They, they they could not have, you know, gone faster than they went. They literally used every minute that they had, even to the point where Lunar Module 3, they show, is sent to to NASA unfinished, so they could at least make a deadline on paper.
1: Right, and it gives you the sense also, by extension, that the entire Apollo program basically was like that. Well, basically, once they decided to kind of go forward with it, maybe except for the time when Apollo 1... Um, the Apollo 1 accident happened, it might have been the only hitch in this breakneck pace the entire time. And they really did go from the end of Mercury to the moon by 1969. I mean, that's a tremendous amount to be able to do in that short period of time. And that is one of the recurring themes, right? When everybody thinks about Apollo, is the technological development uh, that was spurred by a manhattan project like strides that the the nation made an enormous pressure and fear of the soviets right and it it was only made possible by by cold war fears do
0: you know that at the height of um apollo nasa received one percent of the federal budget which is an unbelievable sum right like one penny out of every dollar went to nasa yeah now NASA gets an actual penny. <laughs> well, they're um, landing
1: stuff on asteroids with that penny. That's yeah, Yeah, cool. no, I
0: know, I um, know. So, again, um, Lunar Module 3 is not ready when it gets to the Cape. And, again, this is part of why Apollo 8 is sent to the moon without right. a lunar module. So Bill Anders uh, becomes Apollo 8's lunar module pilot without a lunar module. Right, the lunar the lunar module was so complicated
1: that even working twenty four seven year after year, they had to change the the whole mission plan for Apollo because it just couldn't. It was still had bugs. And they still were working on it,
0: and, and they uh, you know there's a bit where they show McDivitt and uh, Schweikart in the in the lunar module doing a systems integration test that you know the thing fails and fails and fails, and it's done for laughs. But at the end, you kind of get a sense that they're irritated and they're pissed because they know the stakes are high. Um, um, the whole episode, though, you know, before before we see the Apollo 9 mission, you know, there are lots of scenes that really just make the engineers look heroic. There's a very nice scene where Tom Kelly essentially says a personal goodbye to LM3 before it flies. Right. Uh, they, they give them a minute alone with it. Right, that's sort of the the
1: cap to the almost the tom kelly heroism in the in the
0: the episode right and then we shift to the actual apollo 9 mission and did you notice the uh, uh gratuitous clint howard cameo
1: yeah it was a big that's it wasn't even just a cameo like yeah he had, he, he had he's a got part. a
0: little bit there uh, although it's unclear if he's playing cy Liebergot in this or if he's supposed to be somebody else the cy Liebergot being the character he plays in the apollo 13 movie but it's again um um, He's on we get cape, our I think in this one. Uh yeah, I don't remember. We yeah. get our we get our second floating washer shot of the series, right? We see in the Freedom 7 launch with Shepard in episode 1, uh there's a floating washer in his Mercury capsule and after takeoff, uh we get a, a second floating washer shot here and it's sort of it's done a little bit as a joke, but it's also done to show that the Grumman guys are embarrassed by it by the fact that the the lunar module went all the way into orbit, and there's debris in it right and then um sometimes I'm critical of this show because I think they whitewash stuff a little bit, but they don't whitewash uh the Schweikart episode and uh they they make it very clear that Schweickart was very sick in orbit um he was he was famous for being incredibly ill, much more so than for example Borman was on Apollo eight. Um, And this was really at the dawn of when they knew anything at all about space motion sickness. And, um, you know, at a time when these guys would do anything to hide an illness from NASA flight surgeons, you know, he got sick in the most visible way possible. Right. And they had to postpone almost
1: canceled big portions of the mission because they had to do space they had to do a couple spacewalks
0: right they scrub his eva early on you know almost all of the astronauts uh from the mercury gemini and apollo programs in their biographies or autobiographies admit that they would go to doctors on the sly outside of nasa To get things taken care of and just, you know, pay cash and that there was no record of anything. Right. um, So that they wouldn't have to report it. But, you know, poor Rusty Schweikart, you know, very, very quickly realizes that this is the worst possible thing for his career as an astronaut.
1: Right. Especially in this sort of the ignorance of the time where, you know, they. Like, I think we talked about last episode that maybe there was a little more motion sickness in Apollo because they were moving around more and because of the massively spacious Volkswagen Beetle <laughs> uh, cabin um, that maybe it, it, it might have caused more motion sickness. I mean, the missions were also longer, although some of the Gemini missions were long. Um, it, uh, it may have it, at least revealed more motion sickness. Plus, you had three guys on it. You had more guys going up um so more chances for motion sickness to show
0: um and if you know if they'd stayed in orbit longer as we saw in this you know the the motion sickness goes away with with rare exceptions unless you're senator jake garn of utah who famously (laughs) vomited his entire trip away aboard the shuttle um but with the exception of jake garn almost everybody gets over space motion sickness uh, if they stay in space long enough and it settles down right um You know, Schweikart, you know, it's funny because they heavily imply, if not outright state in this episode, that he kind of knows he's not going to get another flight. Like, this is it for him because they'll be too worried he'll get sick. But the real Rusty Schweikart, although he acknowledged that that was definitely a part of it, Schweikart also said that he thought that he didn't get another flight because he was politically very liberal and out and open about it. And the astronauts were, by and large, a very conservative group. And he was aware that his sort of political leanings were isolating him. And he thought that his political leanings had as much to do with him never flying again as his space motion sickness.
1: Could be. I mean, you got guys like, um, you know, Alan Shepard. Um, right. These are all service academy grads. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting also about him, and they allude to it in the episode, is during his spacewalk when he, he gets like five minutes where he's not focused on any task because he's waiting for Dave Scott to go back in and come back out of the capsule.
0: Right, where he's doing his uh, stand-up EVA. And um, and
1: Schweiker is... He's just kind of floating out there, and he's just looking at the scenery. And um, he... I guess he has enough time sitting there that he basically has this uh, a, a transcendental moment. And they allude to it because he... I guess it's so impactful to him. Um, He he has such a a realization of, you know, like we talked about before, that the Earth is small and that where he is and what he's seeing and what the universe is like.
0: And maybe he appreciates it more because he knows he'll never see it again. Maybe, although I don't know if he,
1: at that point, maybe wasn't no he knew he
0: uh, he, they no, because they had that i i think he knew i mean he must have known maybe but these are these are professional pilots they know what it means to have a problem like that
1: but he um you know i mean he he talked about it i think later and it it was something that it made a big impact on him and then he basically thought about that moment forever you know and he um, you know, almost all the almost every astronaut has sort of commented on the fact that when they see the Earth from that viewpoint it changes the way they feel about the universe um, no but, borders right, but I think with him it was even stronger and part of it was maybe like you said that he was thinking this is the only time he's ever going to get to see it, part of it was just that he had this time period of time with nothing with zero responsibility of the moment and he didn't have to talk to anyone about anything that he just was waiting.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, No, um, no, it's a good, it's a, I'm telling you, like there's a lot of wistful stuff in this. Like this is an episode that lets you kind of sit back and think a little bit. Yeah. Um, we see the ascent engine fire. Um, we see the descent engine fire, not in that order. Um, There's a sort of 2001-esque shot of the ascent stage flying. I was wondering if that was a little bit of a a wink to Kubrick. And then uh, the episode finishes with an unbelievably terse encapsulation of Apollo 10. Uh, I mean, literally Apollo 10 in this series gets, you know, one minute in this entire uh, 12-hour series. No, they, they don't, you know, they, they're not going to show every mission,
1: so they just explain what happens in Apollo 10 as just to round the story out and get you ready for the next episode.
0: Yeah, Apollo 10 uh, doesn't get much in this, and Apollo 16 also doesn't get much love. Um, there's, some, you know, Apollo 10 is uh, Tom Stafford, John Young, and Gene Cernan, you know, very famously taking the lunar module into low lunar orbit. And then rendezvous and docking back with the command module and coming home, uh, we could almost do a whole episode in Apollo ten because there's some some good stuff that happens in that mission but but they don't you don't see it in from the Earth to the moon, and then you know this episode ends with the stage set for Apollo eleven right so i I like this episode quite a lot. Um, I think they they get the tone right, you know like they made an hour of engineering interesting to a mass audience yeah you know that's hard to pull off plus they named the uh, command module gumdrop <laughs> right do you know by the way that the do you know what the lunar module used in this episode is it's real
1: uh the um it's oh, lunar the module 13 here? yeah oh, it's really? lunar
0: module 13 uh which is at the cradle of aviation museum on long island hmm so that's a real one so it's kind of so, cool to think so about 13
1: uh, yeah well I, I mean the one in um in the Smithsonian that you can see is is Lem 2
0: I think right which was yeah. I think that was not not to fly but I think Lem 13 I think would have flown on Apollo 18 but never you know never got a chance right And by the
1: way, the engineering didn't stop after Apollo 9. Like, they kept tweaking them the entire time.
0: Well, Um, when you realize, too, that the later lunar modules, like on the J missions, like we see later in the series, you know, they had to carry not just the astronauts and all the fuel. They had to carry the rover.
1: Right. And a bunch of rocks.
0: Yeah. You know, Von Braun, very early in the space program, like in like 6061, Von Braun publicly said we'll have a car to drive on the moon and he was laughed at when he said that yeah and he, he didn't he was like why are you laughing we're gonna have a car they're gonna drive on the moon but he was completely right um not a lot not a lot of flaws with this episode and, and again i i love this series but i certainly will will call out things that i think they get wrong or or kind of mishandle, but th- this is this is a very very polished episode like there's there's really very little bad you can say about it it's really good and it's very lovable as an yeah. episode it's it feel good and it you know
1: it's dorky in all the right ways the
0: lunar module is like the r2d2 of this <laughs> of the apollo program <laughs> it makes you proud to be a dork <laughs> All right. Should we wrap there and move on to uh, episode six? We shall. Okay. So we'll see you guys all for episode six, uh, which is sort of the first of many peaks in the series, uh, which will cover the Apollo 11 mission. All right. We'll see you guys uh, next time. Thanks, everybody.